Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, Sourceful sort of Secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is U-Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never mm. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you and, know, um, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. Was he, was he, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.com. Co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hi, Guy. Hello, Gary. How are you? Good, thanks. Uh, there might be some wind noise. That's not coming from me. That's coming from my roof. Well, it today. is coming from you, but it's also coming from your roof. But <laughs> yeah. uh, um, this is being recorded in a time of great storms. It is. Uh, upheavals, in fact. Yes, geopolitical and meteorological. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is quite a, a good guest to have on because, you know, he was just much ahead of the game in making albums and music about struggle and about difficult times and about the environment and about being gay and black. Yeah. What's very interesting is how he couched everything. And it's especially like his big one, Something Inside So Strong, which was written about one thing, but then adopted as a theme for something else and became an absolute anthem, quite rightly. Yeah. And yeah. recently used uh, outside the Grenfell. That's right. Yeah, with a choir. This is Labby Sifri, obviously, and famous for writing songs like um, "Crying, Laughing, Loving, Lying," which I think is one of the most exquisite, exquisite a, yeah. songs ever. Yeah, because it has a great payoff. It's that uh, songs with a payoff are always beautiful, and yeah. it must be love, which uh, most people might know from the Madness cover. But what about his samples? How many people have sampled him? And it's unbelievable. Well, well, we'll get to that. But let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. I know you're musicians, but you've been more professional than a lot of journalists. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. Yeah. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters Podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Hey, Labby. Hello. Are you alone, Labby, or do you have... Uh, it's no one's helping you there that you're just... Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I'm on the Iberian Peninsula. Wow. Apart from Alan Yentob and a film crew. 
They were here for a, for a week. That was really nice. Alan certainly looked like he was having a lovely time. He was seemed very happy. Well, it was a great bunch yeah. of guys, and it was nice to work with pros. Is that a warning? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's all right. You're, I feel quite safe, probably foolishly so. But yeah, no, it was a it was a good week. It's a sort of an honour, really, isn't it, to sort of reach that status? You know, Alan Yentob imagined. You know, it was Tom Stoppard the week before. You're coming out, as it were, now, Labby. You're doing lots more interviews. There seems to be a reappraisal of all your work. Uh, yes, uh, I'm kind of. I'm getting used to being rediscovered. <laughs> 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 is this a conscious thing, Labby? You're just thinking, I'm ready for the world again? No, not 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 at all. I mean, several people in the past few years have asked me to do a documentary. Uh, and I, in fact, I did do a lot of work with a very fine documentary maker, but it was at a time when I was very low indeed, and I decided that I didn't really want the world to see me like that. And then the Imagine crew, the Beeb asked, uh, they asked if they could do a doc. And I'd seen several episodes and I liked the way that they did things. And I liked Alan's attitude to art. I'm assuming that you're, you know, like most of us, there's that other voice on your shoulder saying, am I worthy? Why me? You know, why now? I was brought up to have very low self-esteem. And I don't like giving myself an easy ride. I don't like giving myself a free pass. I doubt there's anyone more critical of me than I am, which can be a bad thing, but it can be a good thing. However, at the same time, I'm fully aware of my own genius. <laughs> well, no, because yes, your writing is very much you standing up for yourself, isn't it? It's always you make it. You, you're very good at sort of stating the case. You know what I mean? Something inside so strong. And I don't take much credit for that. Uh, that's just how I am. I've always been like that. As even as a as a seven year old, I was like that. Mainly because I had to be, I suppose. But I, I, I I'm, yeah, my stuff is not. Totally autobiographical. Yeah. I mean, as uh, Truman Capote says, you can only write what you know. You use yourself to write about other things. No matter what you're writing about, it's always you. You're writing what you perceive. You're writing what you understand or think you understand. But a lot of the time I write, it might sound like I'm writing about me, but I am, I'm actually writing about a fictional character that I imagine yeah. how they would do something but of course it tends to be tinged with how you would <laughs> it's it's kind of mixed up like that well yeah i mean something inside so strong you know I, i'm we're jumping ahead here but i think it's important to talk about this it's relevant it's it that was inspired out of you watching a documentary about south africa and and, and the horrors of apartheid you sit down at the keyboards and you find yourself writing a song about you being a gay man actually it's funny it's it's a little more complex than that because i had decided to write something particularly about apartheid. But I was the, I still am actually, the patron of a multicultural centre in the place that we used to live in many years ago. There was a problem between white youth and not white youth in the town near where I lived. And... Uh, where is this? Oh, sorry if you don't mind. Uh, well, the town was Aylesbury, but I lived, Peter and I lived in a village called Cuddington, in, between Tame oh, and yeah. 
and Aylesbury. And um, not wanting to diss people, but it was kind of traditional or it happened a few times probably. Uh, white kids on one side of Friar Square and black kids on the other side all tanked up and then they have a barney between, you know, there was customary Saturday night, whatever. Anyway, it, it happened enough times for a meeting to be held at the Multicultural Centre and for some strange reason they asked me to chair the meeting. And there were local representatives, I think there was the representative from the police force there and I think the mayor was there, I can't remember. And there were young people there. And... Uh, I found it very disappointing insofar as the young people all wanted recreational things to be provided, more stuff for them to do. And at the end of the day, the only thing that the adults could provide was another place to drink. Mm. And I left the meeting feeling really, really angry at us, the adults supposedly in the room, who clearly were just doing the usual thing of letting the kids down and not having the balls to look in the mirror and realize what we were doing. So there was that, and that kind of joined my wanting to write about apartheid. It wasn't the main thing, but it joined oh, it. Okay. And I didn't realize that I was writing about my life as a gay child, youth, man, till I sat down at the keyboard, played a C chord, put my head back and sang those two lines just they just arrived straight out of my brain. This is all the, the business about, you know, my brain is cleverer than I am. And my brain doesn't forget things. Things stay at the back of my at the head and they ferment like fine wine. And then at certain moments, they arrive here. Your brain provides the information. Your brain doesn't miss anything. So all of this had been building up and I open my mouth and I sing, the higher you build your barriers, the taller I become. And I start crying and I realize I'm writing about my experience as a gay man. However, as the song then developed, this was over a period of months, I think, this understanding arrived. The song was more universal than that. The song was socially wider than that. It's a little bit like my first poetry book was called Nigger. And the reason I chose that title was when I'd finished all the poems, I needed a title for the book. So I read all the poems and realized that I'd written a load of poems about people who in society, elderly people living alone in our so-called caring society. This was the disabled. Mm -hmm. This was people without money, poor people. It was just a whole group of people who it wasn't noticed that they were being discriminated against or it was just ignored that they were. And there on the front cover, of course, was me, uh, which some people may have noticed I'm black, but many people hadn't noticed that I'm gay. So the yeah. whole thing was wider than I had thought when I was writing all of the work. And it was the same with Something Inside So Strong. I had intended to write for two particular things as far as ethnicity was concerned, racism, I suppose, under that umbrella. Then I realized I was actually writing about so many other people. And then I must say it was nice. Radio 4 did a program. I can't remember what it was called. It was a program about the song and how it affected people. Uh, I try not to listen to things about me very much, but I did listen to that. And it was nice to hear how many different kinds of people in different kinds of situations found that the song had helped them so the song was what I'd wanted it to be insofar as I'd wanted it to be useful. Mm. But also it did show 
I hate to use this word because it sounds so hackneyed. I'll mutter it, universal. <laughs> but you must have been so moved to watch those young kids singing it outside Grenfell a couple of years ago, a few years ago. As a matter of fact, I don't actually view those things from the point of view of being proud of what I've done or being moved by people using it. I observe it more as, yes, it's doing the job I wanted it to do. Yeah, it's fulfilling its purpose. I don't, I, I, I don't actually watch people singing it and get emotionally moved by... No, it's not quite like that. I, I, it has a life of its own. You know, it's like you've put it out there and off it's gone. That's what all of the songs are. Yeah, but you know what I think? This makes me realise that sometimes people write songs and what they're really doing is making tools to give to the world that people can use to fight their own battles with. But I say tools to help themselves in difficult situations, not weapons necessarily. Yeah, actually, you've, you've hit a point because both in music and text, whether it be song or poems or... Or Twitter, by the way. I've, I've followed you for a long time on Twitter and you're a great voice on there. Well, all of those things, one of the jobs I have and clocked some time ago was that part of my job, form of words, can be the difference between peace and war. Form of words can be the difference between hurting someone you don't want to hurt and, and lying to somebody or whatever. Form of words is very important. So I do see that part of my job is to find a way of saying something useful in a form of words that people who can't express themselves very well can use. Because lots of people have important things to say, but they're not particularly articulate. Part of the job of a writer is to provide phrases. You could, you could call them just you know, catchphrases, if you like, short forms of words to describe a situation that other people can use to express what they could otherwise not express. And as well as just being a poet, if you can wrap that up in a beautiful song as well. It doesn't matter which form. But that as a delivery system, yeah. that can't yeah. be beaten. That's it. That's yeah. it, because the music delivers the words with stealth and also creates a sort of prayer, hymn, that people can use. It's easier to understand, I think, when it's surrounded by music. I mean, one of the reasons I, and this was in 1984, I realised that there were things I couldn't say in songs. I just couldn't say these things in the detail I wanted to say them in, in songs. One, of course, was constrained by rhyme, but unlike, for example, um, what's his name with the Smiths? Morrissey. Morrissey did a wonderful thing with, as far as lyrics are concerned, he almost threw away the business of why are we rhyming? I mean, Greek poetry doesn't rhyme. There's no reason why poetry should rhyme. You just have to be very good at it not to rhyme. And in fact, rhyming, this is one of the reasons that, you know, I hate end rhyme stuff. You know, dumpty, 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 dump, dumpty, 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 dumpty. Dumpty 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 dump, dumpty dumpty dump. Yeah, okay, I've heard it once. <laughs> Can we move on? So I found, in fact, that there were certain things you can't better saying it than when it's in the song form. But there are certain things you can't address in certain detail. And also, quite often, the music smooths out a serious thing. It makes oh. the pill easier to swallow. Palatable. Yes. Yeah. And often, I don't want the pill to be easy to swallow. 
because it's serious. This is no time for bullshitting of having it smoothed out for you. I mean, this is one of the things I loathe about the scenes of the massacre in the square were too horrific for us to show you on television. I want to be shown. I'm an adult. In order for me to understand and not become complacent, I want to be shown. But poetry will, unfortunately, always reach fewer people. Well, that depends on... I'm not sure that it's a competition. I don't see it like that at all. Well, I think what Gary's saying is it's not about a competition, but it's it's more about resonating with as many people as you want it to get to. Uh, I think Shakespeare did pretty well. As, uh, as, as, (laughs) you know... Fair point, fair point. (laughs) Yeah, there are some, yes. Yeah, but there's only one of those every 600 years. You haven't read Lavi's I mean, book. Quite a few. I mean, in terms of market penetration. Well, yes, that's we fine. But I mean, that's not speaking only for me. That is not mm. a consideration for me. Right, 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 right. Because part of what you're doing as well is exorcising your own issues, and it's important to you as well as to the people who listen or read. I started thinking about the world when I was six. When I first saw, I remember I was walking with my father. We were in Ladbroke Grove. I was six and in a house with rooms to let. That was the first time I saw the sign that said, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. I realized that that included me. That's when I actually started thinking. And I continued a one person debate, which has got more and more intense over the years. And it is continuous. It's in that way can be a burden, but it is continuous every day. But was identity an issue for you even more so because your mother was mixed race? So there was a a sense of being both camps. No, my mother could pass easily, but uh, she died some years ago. She made it to 101. Wow. If you met my mother, within three minutes, she would say something to you like, you realise, you realise, of course, that I'm black. Right. My mother, not only she wouldn't pass, she would make bloody sure that you knew she was black. <laughs> but was it because you grew up in Notting Hill, didn't you? Well, till I was, till, till I think we moved just before the Notting Hill riots. That's where I'm speaking to you from now, and I've spent all my adult life around Notting Hill Is and seen it change house? beyond recognition. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, because you were on Pembridge Crescent. Yeah. 18. Yeah, which even in the mid-70s, was that was the posh end. It wasn't, well... well or was it not well, at all then? Well, yeah, it certainly wasn't <laughs> posh when we were living there. Yeah, right. <laughs> and they're beautiful houses. Well, they are now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when were you, when was this? This would have been in the, uh, the early 50s or the 50s? It was in the 50s. Uh, I mean, I was born in 1945 and we, we moved, uh, it must have been about 51. I suppose. I hated the 50s. I always think of them as being really grubby and boring. Life was in black and white. No, life was grubby. I can still see the peeling paint in our kitchen. It was green paint. And we went through the narrow kitchen to the coal bit where there was the manhole above and they'd pour the coal down. Yeah, we oh, had yeah, that. Yeah, I we remember. had that. Yeah, yeah. and uh, being washed in a tin bath in front of the fire and mm. all of those things. Well, I, d- I did have that too. We didn't have a bathroom until I was fifteen. 
even like the from you know when I was a kid, which was the sixties, seventies. My overriding memory of London is corrugated iron. Everything yeah, was just corrugated iron. Yeah, and, the bomb sites. And bomb sites still. Yeah. Oh, two of my particular memories are of men sitting on the floor with limbs missing, begging, and men on rolling along the street on boards which had those wheels on them that had ball bearings yeah. in the wheels. Uh, war, the people who'd lost their limbs in the war and begging. And goiters, which you don't see at all now. What are goiters? Goiters are well, large lumps on the gross. back of the neck, which I think were thyroid caused. And you would see a lot of goiters. And then they found, the, found out what caused them, of course, and you don't see it at all now. Your dad was was a Nigerian immigrant. Yeah. Was music big in his life? Well, when we moved, I mean, that was when I first really noticed music. We moved to Hampstead, just at the top of Charles Hill, just uh, around the corner from Hampstead Heath. And that may sound grand, but um, let me just point out, for example, the whole street, Rosecroft Avenue, we were number 26. Uh, the whole street was burgled one day, including us. The whole street was burgled. How long a street then, was it? It was quite a long street. <laughs> wow. And then uh, about three weeks later, they did it again. Thinking, of course, I assume that, well, the police, nobody would be bothering. They wouldn't expect uh, the street to be burgled again. And the whole street was burgled again. Our house was not burgled because they realised we had fuck all of any value. <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> so we wow. lived in Hampstead. But I was very used to having to go to the front door and answer the front door and say to somebody who the old man owed money to, Daddy's not in. The man standing there would look down at me and he would know that I was lying and I knew he knew I was lying and he knew I knew he was lying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right, so, right. I'm so, sorry, Labby, I have to say, I'm surprised the police didn't go, let's interview the guy whose house wasn't <laughs> yeah. yes, broken yes, into. Of <laughs> yes, of course. Yes, yes that's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they'd have come in and seen that, well, they're clearly not using yeah. the goods. <laughs> yeah. But was it a happy childhood, though, Labby? From, no. Oh, um, my father's record collection, yeah. I noticed music when I think I was, I think I was 10 or 11. And my father had a record collection, which was Eartha Kitt, Sinatra. Those were the two main ones that I remember. Then I'm the fourth of five brothers. And the brother who's just five years older than me, he had a growing record collection, which became a big record collection. And the first time I noticed music might have been the first time I really noticed any art, really noticed it, was uh, Sinatra singing One for My Baby and One More for the Road, ah. which I just yeah. played and played and played for about three weeks. I couldn't get away from it. A little bit like uh, Schoenberg's Transfigured Night. Once you hear it, it's very difficult to get past it. And I just played it and played it and played it and played it and played it. And for me, it was the business of that I understood what the guy was singing about. I might have been 11 years of age, but I actually understood, really understood and felt what the song was about. It wasn't just the song itself. And I knew this was going to be very important. And then my, my, my brother, who's five years older than me, he had a record collection that, I mean, I learned from his record collection. So 
most of the things of that kind that he likes, I also like. Still, I've gone a little, a little more modern than he can take. I mean, he wouldn't be interested in listening to Morton Feldman for four hours at a time. Whereas I, uh, I'm very happy to do that, and uh, and I'm not sure he'd be happy. He's very happy with Stockhausen, and I <laughs> like Stockhausen and <laughs> and such things. But we both love Ornette Coleman. His stuff included The Wanderer, The oh, Unknown Belmonts. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, a very yeah. important track for me. We had loads of Fats Domino, loads of Little Richard. Britain was represented by You Really Got Me. Kinks. Oh, fantastic. The Kinks, uh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. I, and actually, I was told when I joined uh, Hamilton King's Blues Messengers uh, that the guitarist I replaced was Ray Davis. Wow. Not Dave Davis. Oh, that's interesting. Ray Davis. Uh, and, of course, Hamilton... Yeah, well, that's another story. I mean, the, th- the three British representatives that I noticed at the time and liked was You Really Got Me, Move It which I think is Cliff's only serious yeah. uh, contribution to, uh, yeah. to the world. Well, it's, it's seen as one of the first rock and roll yeah, records in Br- and, uh, British and rock if and only, roll If only they'd have just followed that, I'd have been a happy man. Was that your no, dad's wasn't, No, my dad was, was rock no. with the caveman. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> his, dad, his dad wrote rock with the caveman. <laughs> Good title. Oh, there was somebody else, I can't remember. But, th- but then, of course, it, it was uh, Love Me Do arrived. But also, it was Lightning Hopkins, Jimmy Reed, which really meant right. a huge amount to me. Lightning Hopkins, Jimmy Reed, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, big influence on me. Nobody would notice that it was an influence on me, but Howlin' Wolf is an influence on me. I mean, nobody would think that Monk was an influence on me. I mean, nobody would listen to the stuff that I've written and think that Monk was an influence on me. So Monk's an influence on me. Uh, but it was also Monk, Miles, Bird, of course, that whole crew um, of bebop musicians, uh, Wes Montgomery, and then right the way through to, you know, Coltrane or uh, Ornette Coleman and beyond. I mean, I've never been genre-specific. Labby, I just want to go back to that One More for the Roads song, because what's interesting that such a young boy would tune in to a song about loss, and it's the drama in it is exquisite. Yeah. You're taken into place, you're in that bar, you know you, you know what time it is, you've got a rough idea of what's gone on and what's left. I think, you know, it's the fag end of the day that, that he's living in this, right? All of that stuff seems to, the drama seems to affect all of your writing from then on. You know, your songs have, you know, the song about the telephone that you wrote. Bless oh, the yeah, telephone. Yeah. Uh, bless the telephone. Yeah. Have you just exquisite little scenes, scenarios of drama? That was a big effect on you. I don't want to make too big a deal of this, but by the time I was 11, I noticed uh, there are five-year-olds now who are more streetwise than I am. However, by the time I was 11, I'd noticed and lived with a lot of emotional happenings. Maybe that was why I was ready to be uh, knocked for six by that song. You then went and you studied music. Was that at a school age no, or was that after no, school? No, no, I didn't study music very much. I've never heard of the Eric Gilder School of Music. I'll tell you my, my musical studies. Yeah. I had about four piano lessons when I was a kid in Hampstead. And then I was standing in the hallway and I overheard the music teacher saying to my father... Well, he has a lot of heart, but he'll never have a good technique. And my music lesson stopped. And then years later, I can't remember, I was 20-something, early 20s, 
and I decided that I wanted to have lessons and I discovered the Eric Gilder School of Music, which I think Teddy Osai of Aussie Bisa oh. also, went, also went to. I remember meeting him at a gig and we were talking and he'd been to there. And I had three lessons with Eric Gilder. On what? I went to do harmony, guitar and singing. The first lesson I had with him, he asked me to sing. And I sang a cappella two jazz standards. I can't remember what they were. And Eric, really nice guy said, uh, well, I'm not going to teach you how to sing. You know how to sing. And you seem to have decided how you want to sing. But you have no idea how to breathe. So go and see this guy. And he gave me the phone number of a guy who I think was singing at the National Opera House. And uh, he lived in Chalk Farm. I remember it was one of those with the stone steps up to the front door. And uh, I met him. and (laughs) And he actually did this. He said, well... You need your diaphragm. And he hit me on the drum. <laughs> and he's like, what? what? Great. Start lesson with abuse. <laughs> Start lesson with yeah, you. You don't know how to breathe. You use your diaphragm. And it was, what's the diaphragm? So he told me what the diaphragm was and what it was used for. And, and we had a lesson on how to breathe, which, of course, was life-changing. And that was my lesson in that. I'm just going to break in a little bit to say, you know, there's an a cappella song on one on your um, Crying Laughing album, which is called Saved, I think, which opens the album. Yeah. And that's extraordinary piece of work. You know, the bravery of just, you sing a whole song without any instrumentation whatsoever. I do that quite often. But yeah. listening to you sing recently on the Imagine documentary, it was all about breath. Oh, my God. You can sing these notes that just go on and on. You do something extraordinary. You could give Bill Withers a run for his money on the note length. <laughs> that, that was a, so that was a worthy lesson that he gave you. Well, I have to say, as you say, assault. <laughs> and then I took two other lessons with Eric. Actually, nice conversation with Eric, because I had suddenly suspected something. I said, do you have perfect pitch? And he said... Yes, I did. I said, that must be wonderful. And he said, uh, well, it's not quite as wonderful as you may think because so many people don't sing in tune. You do. but And I still remember that and think to myself, yeah, Eric, that was really nice of you to say that, but I've heard myself sing out of tune. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so the other class that I took, and I took it twice, music appreciation class it was, And he used as his teaching uh, material Walton's First Symphony, which to this day is still, apart from the fact it is, in my view, a major symphony. And it was interesting that it was an American, Andre Previn, when he came and took over at the LSO, who actually brought that symphony to the public attention in the UK that it deserved. But Eric used Walton's First Symphony, which... I always think of as William Walton's Two Fingers Up to the World. And it has one of the best music directions of any piece of music, written, of course, in Italian. And one of the movements, the musical instruction is con malicio, with With malice. malice. (laughs) Brilliant. And it's played like that. It's a wonderful piece. And still it's it's one of the pieces that I play when when I need to buck myself up. There is a wonderful piece in the in the finale where it's full orchestra tutti and it rises up 
And then the whole orchestra cuts out, except for first and second violins. I think it's first, yeah, no violas, first and second violins. And they're doing this shimmering. And you suddenly realize that you have levitated. You are no longer standing, you are floating. You are no longer sitting, you are floating. Your whole person has gone with the orchestra and he's taken everything out except those shimmerings. And you, I know it's an internal mental thing. You are up in the air. It's yeah. remarkable. You've just given Gary and I a fabulous musical appreciation class ourselves, so thank you very much for that. That was brilliant. Um, I'm going to go and seek out Walton first simply. I'm sure, <laughs> Gary, now we, we know how to listen to it, right? Absolutely. And I think there were about five of us in the class, five or six of us listening, and he would say, now, do you hear the... And he would sing it. Do you hear the flutes? Listen to what the flutes over there are doing to the oboe here and to the violas here. And it was a class in how to listen, not just how to hear, how to listen. And then, and I'm not sure why, I might have just had another job because I was I was working, I don't know whether I was working at Reuters or in another, I was working with Filing Clark or, or whether I was, had a driving job, I can't remember. Anyway, that was the end of my music lessons. So apart from that, I'm an autodidact, I'm self-taught, which of course means thousands of musicians have taught me. All of the musicians I've heard and listened to and been transfixed by have taught me. And I don't say that in some kind of, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah he's trying to be cool or whatever. I mean, seriously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you named no, but, a lot but you're earlier. very technically accomplished. As a, as a, no, I'm not. Oh, well, oh you, you are. You your are. guitar no, you playing's are. incredible. No, no. The lady doth protest too much, I feel. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, take it, just take it, take it, Lavi, take <laughs> it. <laughs> I apologise, I apologise. Actually, I, I, I don't think you should give, give these things away. Like a lot of guys, I don't take compliments well. Well, that's an English trait, isn't it? It's a male trait okay. of a certain oh, kind of man. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers 
and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. Labby, I want to hone it down to this young, dare I say, or can I say, beautiful boy that I first saw on yeah. my television singing It Must Be Love with his acoustic guitar. I mean, you had an extraordinary look. Very, very, very wonderful face and voice and songwriter. So you've got this kid who's playing guitar and this kid who's learning how to sing mm. and suddenly you you discover you can write your own material. 18. What was that moment for you? I can remember it actually. I can't remember the song. I was sitting on my bed uh, in my bedroom in, uh, in our house in, in Roosevelt Avenue and uh, I bought an acoustic guitar from Chapels in Ealing Broadway for £4.10. Which in those days... <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Uh, fortunately, farthings had stopped, so I've got, got the... You sure it didn't come from one of the houses on your street? <laughs> no, 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 unfortunately, no. Um, uh, no, it was Chapels on Eating Broadway, £4.10, I still remember that. And I also bought Play in a Day by Burt Whedon, of oh, course. Oh! Of course. That's how I started, and that's how that, so many... Literally are, the uh, most guitarists. mentioned book on this series. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Um, but I also bought Chet Atkins' book oh. as well. Uh, and in fact, I couldn't manage Bobby Shafto. I couldn't get my head around Bobby Shafto, which was, I think, in the Burt Whedon play in a day. And I couldn't get my head around any of the Chet Atkins. David Gilmore always credits Chet Atkins as being what he learnt with, who he called Shit, uh-huh. Ho- shit Hopkins. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> and the thing was, I already knew internally Jimmy Reed's groove was a real part of me. Jimmy Reed had one groove, but what a groove. <laughs> I mean, for many people, it's Big Boss Man, but for me, it's a song called Let's Get Together. And I still can't get over it. So I already felt that so much, I decided that that's how I'd learn to play guitar. So that's the first thing I started, I learned on guitar was Let's Get Together. When I was way downtown, dressed in Gavdag Lane, found a note down waiting, it said, Donna, just give away, but let's get together, baby. See what we can do. I ain't worried about nobody. I don't ever worry about you. Oh my God, that was beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I think he might have perfect pitch. <laughs> no, no. But the first song I wrote was the usual song an 18 year old in my position would write Nobody loves me, I'm all alone. It was that. Yeah. I can remember writing it and I can remember the melancholy of it, and it came yeah. absolutely from my being. Yeah, the second song I ever wrote, Labby, was called Alone, and I played it to my mum, and she said, you can't play that to anyone, they'll think you're depressed. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I mean, that's what you write when you're 18, and, you know. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the blues is all essentially teenage angst, isn't it? My baby, I'm alone, there's no one in the world. If you think of it, I mean, it that's probably a little bit of a sweeping statement. I should probably take that back. I, I, I had a <laughs> conversation with, my, with the brother with the, the record collection, 
And uh, I can't remember what we were talking about, but we both discovered that we do tend to need something that has even the vaguest connection with the blues to be present in the music that we like. It's not exclusively that, but yeah, it's still very important. I mean, it becomes part of you. I mean, I, my playing started with that and, and the band, my first band when I was 16 was a blues band. Do you know a bass player called Phil Chen? Yes, I knew Phil. Phil yes. came down to Portobello Road to the basement studio, which was under a music shop where we rehearsed and auditioned for my band. Oh, wow. And I'm sure, quite rightly, he realised he was way, way, way ahead of us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Phil was adorable. Potty-mouthed, wonderful who man. Who did he play with? Yeah. Guy, who played with Rod Stewart, with? played with oh, Pete Towns, right. played with everyone. He was uh, just the most delightful man. Brilliant. Yeah, fantastic musician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think he realised he was just way ahead of us. Uh. <laughs> but there was a big change for you. I don't want to jump too quickly if that's not what you want to do, Labby, but I get the feeling from the first two albums, you know, you can hear that potpourri of stuff that's gone into your brother's record collection and, and, and it's all coming out there. There's a lot of American songbook in there. But the record that really breaks you with Crying, Laughing, Loving, Lying, that song, and of course It Must Be Love, which is on there, you seem to have found a, a more sensitive acoustic guitar playing side of yourself that really worked for you and sold you. I mean, in a way, I suppose I connected you as a kid to people like Cat Stevens and James Taylor and, and the autobiographical singer-songwriters that were coming out of America. Was that a conscious change in direction that you made? Although I would add to that, there was actually it's actually swung all the way from sort of James Taylor to there was sort of musically almost Sondheim-esque stuff in there yeah, as well. very. Well, actually, the first thing that broke me was what usually called a turntable hit, and that was Make My Day. Mm -hmm. That was the first thing, that was the first single, actually. And it got played a lot, a lot. Was that on the first album, Labby? On the first album, yeah. Right, OK. I've got to say that um, it's often not mentioned that one is limited by one's limitations. You know, I mean, most of the stuff I've recorded has been with bands of one form or another. But 99, well, certainly 90% of my performances have been as a solo artist, me and the guitar or me and a keyboard. You know, even opening for people like Chicago and the Olympia in Paris or opening for the Supremes or whatever as I was doing in those days. So this is, in fact, where everything went wrong, I, <laughs> I could say. Although I'm quite happy with think how things turned out. No bitching here. But... I never intended to do that. When I was 13, I decided seriously that I was going to be a jazz singer. Ah. I'm in 100 Oxford Street, and Collie, my, my brother, is five years older than me. Where, the 100 Club. Where, 100 Oxford Street. The, the 100 Club, yeah. Yeah, the 100 Club, yeah. And I'm looking up because the stage was built up to protect the musicians from the... Right, like that wonderful place in Glasgow where the stage is really high. The Apollo. So, oh, right. They're not Barrowlands. <laughs> to protect us from the audience. And I'm looking up and Bill Lassard, the vibes player, is playing and he has a girl singer. And I'm already at 13, really into Billie Holiday. And I'm looking up at his girl singer and I said to myself in my head, 
I apologize for this arrogance. I'm 13 years of age, and I think to myself, I can do that. And then immediately after, I think to myself, I can do that better than that. <laughs> wow. That's why you haven't named the singer, isn't it? So as not to. I can't remember who she, who she was. I really had intended to be a jazz singer. And then it all went terribly wrong. Um, <laughs> but, then, but then you ended up in Annie Ross's club, didn't you? Well, I was a guitarist there. By that time, I was trying to be Wes Montgomery. Right. And I was playing with uh, two much better musicians than I, Bob Stuckey on uh, Hammond B3 and Woody Martin, who, who actually uh, toured with Sonny Stitt. Good friend who just didn't really like being on stage in front of people. Alan Gandhi was, was his hero. He was, was a really, really good drummer. They were both better musicians than I. And I had my Gibson the S350 by that time. Oh, which I foolishly years later, well, only, only actually about two or three years later, sold because I was determined to be a jazz singer. And so I had to buy a blazer and look good. Because <laughs> um, Peter and I were then, we lived for several months. He went up there as a consultant to pottery uh, firm. This is your boyfriend? This, not my boyfriend. Peter and I were together for 48 years when the UK finally managed to find enough spine to recognise that we should be allowed to marry at least Tony Blair's Labour Party allowed us to become civil partners. I've never had a boyfriend. I find that really insulting. Oh, oh I'm so no, sorry. No, 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 no. I don't mean you saying it. It's a term. <laughs> I don't find it insulting that people use it. I find it insulting that it's just one of those things that heterosexuals just... This is, of course, a generalisation, but it's a global one. There is something that heterosexuals just don't get. And that is this. Homosexuals, like black people after Rousseau's The Noble Savage, homosexuals and people who aren't white are not exotic, which white culture insists they must be. And in this particular, it's something that I think is really something that heterosexuals globally should understand. Homosexuals are just as dull boring and mundane as heterosexual. Can I just, because this is interesting little route to go down for a second, because you were way ahead of it, but no one really recognised what you were saying as strongly as someone like Bowie, who in 1973 pops up and says, rather exotically, I'm bisexual. And he looks like he's come from another planet, right? So there might be an element that actually that wasn't the best awakening we could have had to things other than heterosexuality on our TV screen. Well, the representation was always crap. I mean, it's, it's of interest to me, for example, yeah, I liked uh, Morecambe and Wise, but I used to think when they did their craven, cowardly, hypocritical, backs against the wall boys, I used to think... Yeah, that's the trouble with you heterosexuals. You want everything your own way. As homosexuals, we're all limp-wristed, we're all weak and pathetic, and we're all hairdressers. But at the same time, we're able to come up to you hunky real men, throw you to the ground and fuck you. <laughs> I don't think I'd ever... You know, I mean, make up your minds. Yeah. It's either one or the other. But that's the same as the, the 70s thing. It's exactly the same as kind of immigrants coming over here, lying around doing nothing and taking our jobs. And taking our jobs. Yeah. So these are the things 
But mainly, my main point is, all human beings, well, perhaps not Donald Trump and Boris Johnson and a few others and Viktor Orban, perhaps, we are genetically designed to require to nurture and be nurtured. And those drives, those needs, are the same regardless of your sexuality. They, can, they will be expressed differently, but they're the same. There has been a, on the internet, you can read about the fact that people said you were dropped from your label at one point because you were gay after for the children album maybe but and i just want yes, to just bullshit you, oh, it's bullshit by right. the way it's the same bullshit as apparently i have a daughter <laughs> okay but it's what you're saying labby that it's it's harder for people to deal with your sexuality because of your straightness shall i say than it was for people to deal with, well because of because Boy George comes along in the 80s and pronounces that he's gay and everyone thinks that's wonderful because it's exotic. The whole bigotry thing is one where, which always pissed me off. Being black, you were supposed to be ethnic. Being gay, you were supposed to be camp. Then you could be put in a little box. Okay, we know what that is. That's fine. We can vaguely respect, or let's not respect, it's really contempt. It's open contempt. And to have to live with that in a world of people who, who really are spineless. And it has to be remembered that homophobia is an extension of misogyny. Homophobia is based on the contempt heterosexual men through the centuries have had for women. Many people have this silly idea that the Greeks and Romans, homosexuality was fine. That was not the case at all. Homosexuality in those times was fine as a kind of mentoring thing where the older mentors the younger and they have sex. However, if the older person in Greek or Roman culture took the supposedly female role, that was heavily frowned upon Mm -hmm. because they were being feminine, supposedly. So, yeah, it was still about being dominant. It's all about the male heterosexuals disdain for the feminine as it has been from the day one. And of course, God, you know, makes his bigotry very clear out of 1,189 chapters in the Bible. God wastes no time in making his bigotry absolutely clear in chapter three of Genesis, where we are told that anything bad from toast falling butter side to the ground to you banging your knee on the coffee table, to war, famine, disease. It's all the fault of woman. That's right. Well, I've read something recently, wasn't it, about Genesis, where, where Adam's actual sin was listening to his wife. Well, nobody gives a shit about Adam's sin. The blame... No, but that's what I mean. It's like, why did he listen to his wife? <laughs> well, but yeah, yeah, but nobody blames Adam. No, that's what I mean. That's I, I'm agreeing with you entirely. Actually, you know, I just getting back to your musical career, but still staying on a, roughly the same subject of you being a, a very staunch atheist. No, hang on, hang on. It's just I've never heard anybody being described as a staunch Christian. Well, no, but okay, a vocal atheist. We fanatical Christians. Don't worry, you're talking to an atheist here already. But yeah. someone who vocalizes that thought. 
And look, Marvin Gaye's making records about God and everyone sings about God. And it's a very, it's the soul background. It's the, you know, it's the gospel background. And you write for the children and on it, you know, there are songs that say, you know, this guy doesn't exist. You know, you've never shirked in your bravery. I'm not brave. I tell you, I do not relish putting my head above the parapet. Often it is a matter of, of me looking around and going, um, hasn't anybody else noticed it? Surely mm. somebody else is going to... Please, is there somebody else who's going to... Anybody? Oh, fuck. I'm going to have to say it. Yeah. I don't relish putting my head above the parapet. I have quite enough troubles without having to do that. So it's not a matter of courage or anything. It's. I wish it was not so, but if you have something you think is useful you kind of have a duty, no, not kind of, you have a duty to say it, at the risk of making a bloody fool of yourself. <laughs> Most people sleep alone, where I think you're essentially taking on the tabloid press, right? Oh, I'm so glad you like that. It's one of my songs that I'm really pleased with. Well, I've got something to tell you. I played bass on that song. Oh! <laughs> You. I wish I'm very, very proud and honoured to have done, yeah. You're no one special, Labby. He's played bass with everyone. He's such a tart. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Yeah, thank I was you. thrilled and honoured. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I was really chuffed with that song because it, it, it actually mirrors the demo I made. Most of the arrangement is from the demo. And were you in the room when he did the bass? I think, I, I don't know that you were. It was a Sunday night. I think it was at Maison Rouge Studios. And I came down. I think it was just because the guy who was doing the rest of the album wasn't available because most of it was Lawrence. And it's, it's listening ah, back to it. And I'm, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was only asked to do one song. I don't know how thrilled everyone was with what I did. <laughs> I actually went in and re... Redid the bass. Did the bass. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was very pleased with that line. This is very silly, but I, I'm inordinately pleased with myself <laughs> for writing um, Victorian adherence. They do it for appearance. Tour appearance. And for some yeah. reason, I, it was the fact that I thought, I wonder if anybody else has put adherence into a song. Sorry, as you can see, I'm still inordinately proud of that line. No, no, you are. <laughs> that should go in any rhyming textbook, I would have thought. <laughs> I have to say, while we're on this subject, Labby, your songs, you know, as a songwriter myself, and I'm listening to your work recently, and I'm totally in awe of how distilled you make a song. Everyone knows that the songwriter, certainly, that the great skill of a song is to take an idea and to get rid of all the flab and, and just to hone it down to what counts. And that will be in rhyme and in rhythm and, and scansion and melody and what you're trying to say. And you really do, sir, have such a skill at doing that. It's almost like I'm reading the Times crossword. You know, it's <laughs> every word, every letter counts. Uh... Yeah, yeah, th yeah, thank you. So, uh, well, if, th if that's how it comes across, I'm very pleased with that. And yeah. because I know that's not a, there's no question in that. There's not anything you can answer. I'm just making it as a statement. But let's just go on to the fact that you're being recognised and you became recognised by a lot of great American artists who, who have sampled your work. I mean, I say great, but I'm talking about Jay-Z and Kanye West and, of course, What's M &M. amazing, yeah, about that, sorry to interrupt, Gary, is the fact yeah. that you had two massive hits. I mean, one absolutely epoch-defining one with um, Slim Shady. But two, from one song. 
because you've got a song that has such a brilliant left turn in the middle of it. Jay-Z did the first bit and Eminem did the middle bit. I'd always wanted to write a turnaround. Because it's from this brilliant song called My, my song, song, right? Yeah. Which is my... Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd always wanted to write a turnaround because of coming so much from the Great American Songbook when, you know, when a, you know, a chorus was all the way through, through the song. And then at the end of the chorus, you had to go back to the beginning. The jazz turnaround was the one... And the thing that got me about it was that it's a musical perpetual motion machine. Mm -hmm. It can just go on and on forever as long as you've got someone who can solo forever. So if you've got uh, Paul Gonzalez with, uh, with Ellington or if you've got David Sanborn or if you've got people like that who can just have a, a, enough musical imagination to play for five hours and not Johnny repeat Hodges, themselves, yeah. um, it can go on forever. And I'd always wanted to write one. I'm writing just quite normally as I would address writing a song and I get to the place where I put in a middle eight. At the time, I was getting fed up with the form, and I just wanted to try and brought. This is a time when I wrote um, things like "Pristine Verses," another song I'm very proud of, and "So What." And I thought I'm not going to do that with this. So just as you do, you just start exploring, and I started writing this, and then I discovered I'd written a turnaround, and I was really, really pleased with it. The thing that most people don't know about this, this has got to be at least two years later. I'm listening to Beethoven's Egmont Overture. And in the finale of Beethoven's Egmont Overture is, on first and second violins, and I think violas, is... So the greatest jazz turnaround Modern jazz wow. turnaround was written by Beethoven. And I'm with Schroeder from Peanuts. What is the secret of life? Beethoven. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Brilliant. Well, it's certainly the secret of Eminem's hit, wasn't it? <laughs> so I like the fact that my turnaround was inspired by the jazz turnaround I heard when I was a kid, which turns out <laughs> to have been written by Beethoven. Nice one. Brilliant. But that means there's going to be another point in that story, isn't it? There's going to be another song further down the line because that you know this wonderful thing of musical trains that just kind of go on forever. There was a song earlier, of course, called My Song, which is on the Crying Laughing album, which Kanye West sampled um, yeah. for his song I Wonder. Yeah. And I looked at it on YouTube, and of course, the whole of the beginning of this is you. It's your song. It's you singing. Kanye's not even on it. And underneath, there are streams of people who have written on YouTube. Oh, this is the best Kanye song ever. This is incredible. <laughs> it's so emotional. I say, but this is Labby. This isn't even Kanye. <laughs> and then Kanye comes in later with some rapping stuff. Mm -hmm. you know. But your connection through the years that you know, reverberates into American music and uh, you know the music that America was the place that inspired you. And now you're you, to play such a big part. I mean, you know, the Super Bowl, that was you. The, you know. I used to think to myself that everything would have been very, very different had I been born in the States. Everything would have been very, very different. In a good or bad way. That's the pointlessness of, of thinking about having yeah. a different life. You know, I mean, I've had the life that I've had. Fortunately, it's turned out not to be totally disastrous 
And of course, if you change, yeah, I mean, that's the whole science fiction thing. You change one action and everything else. Butterfly effect. Changes, you know, and it's it's quite likely for the worse, (laughs) you know. So, uh, so, you know, there's no point in that. But um, I mean, my musical, I don't know what my musical roots are. It's just that I've never understood background music. I've never understood what it is because if music is playing, I have to listen to it, which is actually can be disadvantaged because, uh, you know, I tend to have to warn people. Well, I don't warn people, but I mean, the truth of the matter is if I'm in conversation with somebody and music is playing, there is a very good chance I'm not really listening to you. Right. Because I'm actually listening to what's being played, even if it's not something that I'm particularly interested in. Yeah. Um, the Pied Piper. It's quite difficult sometimes. And, and people don't, civilians don't really quite understand this. I want to talk to you just now about your new music, because I heard a little bit of you singing something which I think was new on the Imagine documentary. And it was bloody extraordinary. You suffered a, you know, bereavement recently, not well, not that long ago. And that was quite extraordinary for you, I'm sure. And how does that, does the songwriting help as your tool to get through that? Oh, I, I, I mean, undoubtedly, I mean, you know, this is a human condition, you know, we will never ever know how anybody else feels until we manage to get uh, Spock's mind meld method. It's again that, that, that Truman Capote thing, you can only write what you know, and you only know what you don't, most, you know, most of us don't even know ourselves. I would assume that what has happened to one informs one's work. I'm not sure there's any way it would not. But also in the way you sang, Labby, because as you saw that guy, didn't yeah. you? And the way you de- sang that song. I, were you, I mean, to talk about being in touch with your emotions. Um, I had two spouses. Peter and I were together mm-hmm. for 48 years. Ruth and I were together for 19 years. They died within two years, six months and 28 days of each other. I lived for them and they for me, and I'm uh, trying to dig myself out of that um, uh, nearly six years after Root died. And I have written two or three songs that clearly are informed by my two spouses dying. And unfortunately, they are very, very difficult for me to be able to get all the way through singing them without, without finding that I can't sing them. So... The things that happened in the in the video were not at all to do with... I hadn't actually thought that I should sing them because I didn't actually think I'd get to the end of them. And in fact, the one that I couldn't finish was actually about the sixth attempt to sing it. Oh. And I managed to sing the second song all the way through. So, for example, if I ever, and I don't know that I ever will perform live again, if I ever do, it's that business of being able to distance yourself. I would have to really teach myself how to distance myself from those songs in order to be able to safely include them in the programme for the evening. I've never been very good at compartmentalising. I read something about Woody Allen once many years ago where he said he was lucky because he could very easily compartmentalise his life. 
I mean, he was making a movie and I, I can't remember whether it was his mother or a relative had died and he got the phone call while he was directing the movie that this relative had died who he was very, very close to. And he said he was able to put the phone down, completely divorce himself from the information he'd just received and get on with his job. Yeah, some of us can do that and some of us can't. So the thing on the on the documentary really was it was um, uh, they were a very good crew, nice guys, and and uh, and gave me enough space. Yeah. Anyway, and are we going to hear it? Are you yeah. going to put it out? Do you think we're going to get a new Labby Sifri album? Is the question. I have no idea. Is the honest answer. I'm spending time in the studio. I am back at work. After a, oh, it's actually an almost 18 year break. I have enough songs for an album. I've more than enough songs for an album and songs I'm pleased with. So I have started working. I'm inching my way or millimeter by millimeter. <laughs> well, you've, you've had long gaps before, Labby. Well, that, I mean, that, that, not to go into the, too many details, uh, you know, Peter's first stroke was in 1998. And uh, in, uh, around about the autumn, I'd had a tour booked. And I had to do the tour, so I changed the title of the tour to The Last Songs Tour, which is mm, the, the title the album, of The Last yeah. Album. The Last Songs Tour. I thought people might get the hint then if I called it The Last Songs Tour. And uh, January 1999, I quit to look after Peter. And apart from one concert in 2015, Leicester Square Theatre, which I actually did to see if I could still do this, when you add them all up, it's been a kind of 18-year break. Uh, but anyway, I'm back at work. It's funny. There are some things I can't do that I used to be able to do. But it's interesting. There are some things that I couldn't do then that suddenly I find I can do now. That's wow. been really interesting. And, and I'm very pleased, relieved to find how eager I am to learn still. I'm very pleased about that because that's so important. As a singer, you're talking about being as a singer. No, I'm talking about the whole things that I do. I mean, at the moment, I... As a person. It was the first week of this year, actually, and I'm in the studio and I'm having some problems with distancing myself and I suddenly realised, talking to myself, come on, Sifu, you've got to take your writer's hat off, you've got to take your performer's hat off, you've got to take your artist's hat off, and you've got to put your producer's hat on. And just thinking that and realising that really made it easier to get on because I managed to get some distance between the stuff that I'd made. Mm. I'm not making it now. I'm in the studio doing Being what objective. I do as a producer. And I take a lot of breaks, you know, after an hour or so, the concentration, your ears start lying. To, you know all of this. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I have found that I'm a bit, mm, I can get nervous of myself. And I recognise it immediately. And it's, OK, another cup of coffee, time for tea. Well, listen, we hope it does. We hope really, you get really. this thing out in the end. Well, we'll see. I hope so too. You know, <laughs> it's been a pleasure having you on. It's Lavi. been an absolute thrill. And I'm just going to just throw it out there. Having done it once, I would love to be I would be honoured to give you some bass if you ever wanted anything. Again. I may hold there you to that. <laughs> please do. Please do. He'll even pay for his own flight or he'll get me to pay for it, probably. Oh, free. Just send me the... <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> it's been good talking oh, to you. Oh, 
It's been thank really, you. really lovely talking to you, Lavin. Thank you for being so open with us. And, you know, you summed up something so brilliantly when you said after about an hour when your ears start lying to you. Yeah. That's exactly the problem that of of trying to finish stuff. You're, you're so don't, right. Don't be afraid to take breaks. Take breaks, guys. I'm talking to your audience. Take breaks. <laughs> <laughs> Not from this show, though. Yeah. You know, cup of tea, 10 minutes of QI. And then, and then, and then, back to work. <laughs> oh, listen! This has been such a, a great chat to, yeah. with you, and it, inspiring. I yeah. mean, you are an extraordinarily inspiring person, and um, and thank you for that. Thank you both. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. What a powerfully intellectual man he is. Yes, really, and um, not afraid to say, you know, what he means or what he thinks. You know, often people who are so aware intellectually of themselves and of others and can express that intellectually, I find at least in touch with their emotions, you know, because they can just cover their emotions in words. He has it all. Yeah. And he can channel it into his music. I I really hope he does finish that album and and, and get it out. Definitely. No, the world needs it. Yeah. Listen, we must say, anyone who's got any questions, we might start a little thing where we actually answer some of your questions on air. Don't you think that's a good idea? I think it's a very good idea. Probably quite not as articulately as Labby, but we'll give it a go. No, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so put them up on uh, social media and, and we'll gather some together and we will might even mention your name. We should engage with you more we personally should. Yes, that we should, way. because yeah, we love you engaging with us. Yes, thanks for listening. This has been quite a long one. I hope this has been a good uh, listen, whether in the bath or walking the dog or um, just in the car. Or burying the body under the patio, whatever you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) And it's good night from me. And it's good night from everyone.